bio is a national security threat that is capable of producing catastrophic and potentially existential global consequences, which I think is something that isn't usually touched upon when talking about biological risks. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On October 18th, the White House released an expansive new strategy on countering biological threats, enhancing pandemic preparedness, and achieving global health security. The strategy sets out a whole-of-government approach to mitigating biological risks. This includes naturally occurring pathogens and dangerous new pathogens created in a lab. Significantly, according to my guest today, Nikki Turan, the biodefense strategy recognizes that such risks could be catastrophic and even potentially existential for humanity. Nikki Turan is Director of Biosecurity Policy at Guarding Against Pandemics. We kick off discussing the biorisk threat landscape, that is, What sort of specific pathogens and broader trends does a strategy like this seek to mitigate? We then discuss the substance of the new U.S. biodefense strategy, its strengths, weaknesses, and potential barriers to implementation. This new U.S. strategy is a significant development in U.S. and indeed global efforts to confront biological risks and prevent the next pandemic. This conversation gives you good background to understand key details of this strategy and what comes next. And now here is my conversation with Nikki Turan, Director of Biosecurity Policy at Guarding Against Pandemics. The threats that are most concerning to me are the accidental and deliberate, but the whole landscape includes naturally occurring, accidental and deliberate. And so here, naturally occurring is typically zoonotic spillover. There are lots of viruses out there in animals and they sometimes are able to mutate such that they can infect people. Like Ebola or monkeypox are two kind of recent examples of that? Absolutely. And one that people might not be as familiar with is Nipah, which some bats carry. And when bats drink the palm syrup and then humans drink that same palm syrup, they're exposed to the bat saliva that could have viruses in it. So especially as animals are changing their migration patterns due to climate change, they're able to pass pathogens between each other in ways that they didn't previously, which leads to mutations. And they're coming in contact with people in a way they didn't previously as there's less wild out there and more human-animal interfaces. And this is partly an example of why we're seeing increasingly more zoonotic pathogens out there infecting people's at like a greater clip than we have in past history. Yes, we're also noticing more. And people are more interconnected than ever. So 
it could be that Nipah was commonly spilling over in some small village and those people got sick and maybe the village got sick, but it didn't expand past that village. But now, since people are going into cities and traveling around the world, you're much more likely to have those pathogens escape that one tiny little corner of the world and become a big problem. And so that's just the naturally occurring. Biotechnology is advancing rapidly such that humans are able to almost play God, create and manipulate life in ways that they haven't been able to before. And it's becoming cheaper and easier. And there's more and more information about how to do this. They're actually like little kits. You can buy a CRISPR kit online. Maybe it's about 50 bucks. Maybe it's 200 bucks. And edit the DNA of bacteria just at home with what comes in the mail. Editing the E. coli genome to be resistant to an antibiotic isn't the biggest pandemic threat, but it is actually gain-of-function work where you're adding functionality to a potential pathogen that didn't happen before. And it's work that can happen just in anyone's garage as opposed to in like a regulated setting. Yes, and that expands the potential for both deliberate use, where more people are able to create weapons in a way that they weren't before, and accidental use, because if someone doesn't know what they're doing, they might create a problem, or if they are trying to deliberately create a problem and are not very effective at doing so and infect themselves, then you have another problem. And this is just not regulated. This is like a corner of the bio-risk world that is like a free-for-all? Essentially, there are some requirements around reporting if you are funded by the National Institutes of Health. But otherwise, if you're doing it on your own, there's basically free reign. Now, there is a list of pathogens that you're not allowed to have unless you have special permission. And those do include smallpox and Ebola, SARS, some stuff like that. But it is a finite list. And so if you add capabilities to RSV, that wouldn't actually run afoul of any U.S. regulations. And RSV, we should know, it's just like running like wild through elementary schools right now. So one can imagine if one wanted to add functionality to RSV to make it more potent or more resistant to treatment, this is something that like people could do. Yeah. And not everyone who's doing work in this vein is doing it maliciously. Actually, for the development of vaccines, people do typically make pathogens more transmissible but they tried to tone down its pathogenicity, its virulence, and how sick it actually makes people. So it's not like we only need to worry about bad actors, but we also need to make sure that the work we're doing in the name of defensive measures is both done as productively as possible and as safely as possible. How frequently do accidents happen that are potentially very catastrophic, that are using some biological agent that is particularly virulent. Is this like a frequent occurrence or are these accidents relatively very rare? I think it depends on what your definition of relative is. I've seen a list of, I think something like 40 different accidents with high consequence pathogens in the last 50 years. A good example is SARS, where SARS emerged twice from animal reservoirs, but I believe there were six separate incidents where it got out of labs and made people sick. And actually, the last person to die from SARS died as a result of a laboratory outbreak. 
And actually, it wasn't even the researcher who died. It was her mother, which is very sad. So it's in this context in which we have an increasing frequency pace of naturally occurring pathogens, the zoonotic pathogens that you were discussing earlier. Then you have a whole suite of new technologies that are enabling the deliberate or accidental release of pathogens. And it's in this context that the Biden administration is releasing its new national strategy for dealing with biological threats. What is in this strategy that is significant and notable to you? One thing that I find particularly notable about the strategy is that it actually refers to catastrophic biological incidents. And in the National Security Memorandum that accompanies it, basically the strategy is like the game plan and the memorandum is actually telling people they really do have to do it. There is in the memorandum mention of the fact that bio is a national security threat that is capable of producing catastrophic and potentially existential global consequences, which I think is something that isn't usually touched upon when talking about biological risks. Often it's grouped into a public health issue and not so much a national security or even existential risk issue. So I don't think there's anything particularly revolutionary that's shown in the national biodefense strategy, if you're the kind of person like me who is constantly paying attention to this. But it is like a very solid collection of what needs to be done to prevent and respond to and recover from catastrophic biological incidents. Can you walk those of us who are not so deeply enmeshed in this issue? What are some of those key highlights, key strategy points? So key strategy points here start out with preventing outbreaks from becoming epidemics and preventing incidents before they can happen. So here are the incidents before they can happen revolve around biosafety, trying to make sure that labs have the best resources they can to keep their workers safe, and also preventing epidemics or preventing outbreaks from becoming epidemics and pandemics. And here, a big factor is early warning and detection. What does that mean like in practice? Basically, it's a smoke alarm for pathogens. You don't want to see the house on fire to know that there's a problem. So early warning and detection can be pathogen agnostic, where you don't necessarily know what you're looking for. All living things, most pathogens, most things we're worried about have DNA or RNA. And you're able to kind of read those DNA and RNA sequences and see that there's something there. So that would give you an idea of, say, if there is Ebola in San Francisco, or if there's an exponentially growing new pathogen that maybe you've never seen before you can kind of send out that alarm. That's the smoke, that's the signal. There's also ones that are more targeted and directed, either through wastewater monitoring of known pathogens. This is the thing where we kind of know how much COVID is in a city by how much COVID RNA you're able to detect in literally sewer water, like literally from people's poop. And then there's also signals in hospital usage. So if a bunch of people in one city are coming in with pneumonia, especially pneumonia of unknown origin, you can flag that. Although I personally think that's like a little bit on the late end. To what extent are these early detection systems, the kind of smoke alarm you just described, also able to be deployed internationally? 
I mean, you know, one thing that we've seen, we discussed Ebola earlier or Nipah, these are diseases mostly of the developing world in countries and places that do not themselves necessarily have such robust health systems, let alone the kind of surveillance that you're describing. Does this strategy account for that? Absolutely. The strategy does task not just CDC with trying to implement this kind of surveillance, but also USAID and the State Department. You might be inclined to think that, like, we over here are so civilized, of course we'd be able to implement these high-tech plans, and what about places where Ebola comes out? But in reality, they actually have better infrastructure than we do in many ways, because it is a recognized threat, and there has been investment, especially throughout Africa, in trying to set up some of these surveillance systems. Whereas in the United States, there's actually a big issue of data sharing between states from states to CDC. So it's important to both do that investment on the home front so we can detect things when they're here, but also around the world. And it's a large task to do anywhere, but it's not like we're totally safe here. And on biosafety, what specific either regulations or directives does this strategy suggest be used to improve biosafety concerning some of the risks that you were discussing before, both in terms of gain of function research, the idea that you could, you know, manipulate pathogens ostensibly to study them, but bad things might come from having manipulated them. And also the kind of off the shelf CRISPR by mail you discussed earlier. The national biodefense strategy doesn't have very clear guidelines as to exactly how these things should be implemented, but it does stress that safe and secure biolaboratory practices should be a priority and should be promoted. So it's not saying like you need to wear this kind of gloves, but it is saying that there needs to be an interagency review of what the current recommendations and standards are and best practices should be propagated from that. Similarly, that it should be a priority of the United States to make sure that these best practices are shared internationally as well so that we're not the only ones sitting on good information as to how to keep people safe. And here in that prevention bucket is not just biosafety. There's also deterrence of biological weapons. So this is making it really obvious that you don't want to use biological weapons, having everyone affirm that this is a norm that we're not going to break, and also coming up with the tools to very quickly decide who released a biological weapon so that there can be appropriate responses to that. That leads me to like a set of questions around implementation. You know, this Mm -hmm. is a strategy. Accompanying the strategy is an implementation plan. Part of that includes like an $88 billion of funding. Where does Congress stand on these issues? I mean, we've seen in recent months partisan squabbling over COVID funding with Republicans balking at additional funding requests from the administration on COVID-related issues, both domestically and internationally. Does Republican sort of reluctance to want to continue to fund COVID issues at the level the White House is requesting, does that reluctance sort of shadow or carry over into other issues around biosafety and biosecurity? I don't think that there's so much a, a large pushback against investing in the future through pandemic prevention, so much as there's like some apathy towards it and it's no one's greatest priority. 
Do you fear that funding for the implementation of this plan might go the way of COVID and become partisan? I absolutely do worry about it becoming a partisan issue. There are people that are interested on both sides of the aisle in making sure this doesn't happen again. People can agree on a solution to a problem without necessarily agreeing what the key components of those problems are. So here, Democrats might be really concerned about the equity issues surrounding pandemic prevention and response, where the people on the front lines are not the most privileged. The people that need to keep food on the table are not necessarily the same ones that are making the decisions here. Whereas on, for Republicans, there's also the issue that this is a national security threat, that this could destabilize the country and put our freedoms in danger. We saw a lot of la- loss of freedoms during the COVID response, especially early on. And you want to prevent that from happening again. And so the solution here is funding. The White House has requested that $88 billion in mandatory spending. So that's kind of a promise for the next five years we're going to give this money, which is not the way that Congress typically operates on these things. They like being able to have the oversight of the agencies and making sure that the funding that you give them every year is well allocated year to year. You can tell it was well spent. You're not just promising things in the future. In this plan, there's not just the request for that $88 billion, but I believe it's in the National Security Memorandum. There's a requirement for the agencies to make pandemic preparedness and prevention funding part of their yearly budget. So that's incorporating this priority into their normal form of action. And this is like the meat on the bones of a whole of government approach. When we say whole of government, you know, we mean that agencies themselves adopt this as a strategy sort of intrinsic to how they operate. It's sort of part of what they do from now on needs to incorporate pandemic preparedness and bio threat mitigation. Exactly. It's not just that it needs to be part of how they operate day to day as a priority, but also a whole of government response requires a lot of coordination between different parts of the government. And here there are leads presented and support for every goal and strategy in the sub aim. But that still doesn't necessarily guarantee that everyone's going to play together nicely and you're going to get a coordinated whole of government response because that coordination part really matters for efficiency and cost effectiveness. I'm curious, what grade would you give this Biden administration biodefense strategy plan? You know, I know this is like what you study, what you do for a living. How would you assess it as it has been released thus far? I think it's a great comprehensive game plan. I think I would probably give it an, well, I don't know. Depends on what kind of curve we're grading on. A minus? I think it's like, it's very well done, very well put together. Thinks through all the different components that might be necessary for preventing outbreaks, responding to outbreaks, recovering from outbreaks. But I guess it depends on what the assignment is. I'm worried that there isn't enough in the actual implementation. Like when you get down to the nitty gritty of some of these things, they're really complicated. And this is a very high level plan as it should be from the NSC. So I think it's got a lot of good information all in one place. It's got a comprehensive idea of where you need to start, how you need to get things going, how you need to respond. But 
the devil's in the details. And I feel like no single document that any one person can read can really encompass all of those details. So maybe I'm just grading too harshly. I'm expecting too much from anything like this. Well, what would be like a detail in this plan that you could foresee either being resolved in a way that's really effective and impactful, or on the other hand, be resolved in a way that does not live up to the purported purpose of this document? Like, What are some of those nuances and details and implementation that you'll be looking towards in the coming months, years as this rolls out? One of the things that is mentioned, but not spelled out super consistently, is protecting infrastructure. And that can mean a lot of different things. In context, it might seem to mean like medical countermeasure infrastructure, things that you would need to make masks or vaccines. But it can also mean like literally keeping the lights on, keeping food going into stores or into people's homes, keeping water systems running. And I don't think that this document spells that out as clearly as might be desired. And then when you get there, there's a bunch of issues where a lot of these things are run at the state and local level. And so how do you coordinate with who exactly needs to do the coordination? Some things are listed as HHS is the lead for this, but HHS is giant. There are sub-agencies within them and then sub-components within those and then different people within there. Yeah, I think that there's no one playbook for everything. This can't be the single playbook. But there are plans to have representatives from agencies meet every 90 days And my hope would be that the kind of detail that I'm really seeking would get hashed out in those or even at a a more micro level. I just have to trust that things will get done. To what extent do you consider this strategy to be a response to COVID, like the last pandemic, obviously still ongoing, as opposed to predicting how a future pandemic might unfold. I do think that there's a basis for this strategy that's independent of COVID. This is basically updating a 2018 version of the strategy, which obviously happened before this pandemic. I don't think it's super targeted. I think that a lot of these components are necessary almost regardless of what the outbreak is. And I don't think it's playing too much of favorites. It does mention, again, catastrophic risks, but I'm not sure that when you get into the actual details, it encompasses what a catastrophe could actually really be like. So it maybe is hanging too much on how COVID ended up being in that respect, even though it seems that they are conscious of and want to work on potentially larger issues. So what was left out? of this strategy that if you were designing it, you would be sure to include? Yeah. One part that I didn't find in the biodefense strategy was around information and potential problems of biological information. And how do you deal with that? There is the biosafety component where you want to make sure that pathogens don't get out of labs. And there is the biosecurity component of deterring development of biological weapons. But I don't think that there's enough of or really any mention of the kinds of information that can be generated that could be easily misused. And that is to say, like, it's not sufficient to prevent bugs from getting out of labs. 
you need to prevent the information on how to create those bugs from getting out as well. And it's just kind of glossed over here or omitted. The idea is that you have scientists could be doing like, you know, legitimate scientific research. They might want to publish their findings, but their findings might be really problematic for humanity. Absolutely. And I think that's a problem that we've seen during COVID, where in order to do good research on COVID, there have been scientific developments that have made it so that people can essentially manufacture COVID-like pathogens quite easily. And I think that that's a threat that isn't touched on here. And I would like to see focused on more in the future. Are there any key inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not this strategy and this this plan is actually being implemented in impactful ways? Yes. I would hope that there'd be some readout of that NSC-mediated interagency gathering to see that everyone is on the same page. But I think one of the biggest readouts will probably be the budget requests next year whether these agencies are actually thinking about how they would need to implement this plan and what funding they would need for it and in what specific accounts. So I think it'll really be pushed onto the agencies to figure out those details or the readout will get about whether they're actually going through that will be those budget requests. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for your time and for putting this new strategy in context. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have any questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Please rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts.